We've made it halfway through the book of Genesis. 50 chapters, we're at chapter 25. I guess I want to do like we always do and read through the whole bit and then we'll come back and look at them, I think. Maybe not. I think this time I'm just going to take a bite at a time. Um, Genesis 25, it's about a birthright. Genealogies, generations, the history of, the accounts of statements, they're all milestones and markers in Scripture. Genesis 2.4 says, heaven and earth, the, the generation or the, the account or the genea- not the genealogy, but the history of, of heaven and earth is the first time it's mentioned. Then Adam and then Noah and, and the table of nations and Shem. Terah, and now Ishmael and Isaac we're going to talk about. God's word is alive and it gives life. And uh, it's also a historical account of the people he chose out of all the populations of the world to establish them and to establish through them the Messiah that he will reconcile all of mankind back to himself. All this while, the dynasties in China and all the tribes and, and kings and Kingdoms in all of Europe and, and uh, Africa, their history is unfolding. All the people that are spreading across the planet, the um, Polynesians getting out to the islands and, and um, you know, the people getting across the Alaska and by boat to make it to America. And all this is going on, but the Lord chose his people. Uh, remember this when we get to the part in scripture where it, some would say it's unjust or um, unrighteous of God to drive out these heathen nations in Canaan like he promised he would do um, and give the land to Israel. All these had their, their gods, their false gods. And, um, but even though Israel went astray to follow after other gods, God was still faithful, the one true God, to make himself known again to Israel and through Israel, his chosen people, to make himself known to the world. And even in their rejection of the Messiah, that was prophesied. And uh, that was something he said and was a testimony of who Jesus was and who the Messiah was. And it all turns out for our redemption, as we'll see. Even the fact that they rejected him. Verse 1 through 11 Genesis 25, Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shual. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Leumim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, and Epher, and Hanak, and Abedah and Eldaah, and these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had. And while he was still living, in his, uh, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. 
And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in a cave of Machpelah, which was before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. And there Abraham was buried, and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass, after the death of Abraham, that God blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac dwelt in Beer Lahai Roy. Abraham and Keturah. Abraham lives 175 years, it says. And it says he's gathered to his people. And it does not say that he just vanishes and no longer exists or uh, is, um, you know, annihilated, as some would say. You know, after you die, you just go into annihilation and there's nothing. No, it says he went to his people. And it points to an afterlife. It points to a resurrection eventually. Abraham's descendants by Keturah were the forefathers of the Arabians or the Arabs, the Arab nations. Sheba, if you want to turn to Ezekiel 38, because um, some of these names we recognize. And like I said, these are the, these are the generations, the historical account and, uh, of the and milestones in Scripture. And for this reason, uh, we want to see a little bit of how that plays out. Um, in Ezekiel 38, um, just verses 10 through 13, it says, Thus says the Lord God, On that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages and I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take a plunder, to take a booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited, and against a people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. Well, this is speaking of the Gog and Magog War, which is right on our doorsteps when you look at the news, and we're all familiar with that if we've been here for any length of time at Calvary, where we teach through prophecy and uh, Ezekiel 36 begins the regathering of Israel into the nation, 1948. And 37 is the dry bones, the kingdom that was to Israel and Judah now becomes one land of Israel. And the, you know, the hip bones connected to the leg bone and so on with uh, Ezekiel 38. And it'll be one kingdom with one king. And Ezekiel 38 talks about the Gog and Magog war, and Gog being Russia. It says, Tubal and Meshech. Uh, Tubal is, there's actually a city north of Moscow called Tubalsk, and there's none other in the world that I know of named Tubal. Um, and then Meshech is, uh, and Gog and Magog point to Russia and the northern areas and these other countries that line up with it. And we get down to verse 10 where he says, you're going to come in and uh, you're going to try and take the land. But um, in verse 13, notice, there are some other players on the scene. And these are players in our lives right now that we see on the news right now. And I think even some, uh, well, uh, I don't want to talk politics. So, uh, 13, Sheba and Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish. Well, Sheba and Dedan, uh, we read back, were these descendants of Keturah. And so we talked about them being the Arabs, the Arab nations. This is Saudi Arabia. Merchants of Tarshish, now, we didn't see that there, but we saw it in the Table of Nations. These settled out towards the coastlands. And many would say that this is, is uh, Britain, 
because Britain sailed had the had the sailboats. They they traveled the world and and all, and they traded um, by sea, and that is Tarshish. And if you wanted to take a big stretch and find America in Bible prophecy, you might find it there where it says, and all their young lions will say to you. In other words, it's a stretch um, if you're going to find America in prophecy other than when the face of every nation, America is in that group, uh, the face of every nation will be against Israel. The Bible says at that time when the Lord puts down his foot on Mount Zion and all the world knows that he is their God. And um, anyway, so there's Sheba and Dedan. And, uh, but notice they're saying, you know, just like they are today. You know, Saudi Arabia is practically an ally now in some ways to Israel where uh, they've got some arms deals because why? Because right across the Gulf, right across the sea is Iran and Iran is, you know, uh, an enemy of Saudi Arabia. They're, they're uh, making all this wealth off of their oil and doing all this trading and Iran just wants to blow up the world and uh, try and turn everything to Islam. And uh, obviously all these dealings with America, the great Satan, uh, then Iran is certainly going to want to take out Saudi Arabia. And now even Israel has stricken up, what's the word, has taken up some deals with Saudi Arabia, even though um, Saudi Arabia is the home of Al-Qaeda and has sponsored a lot of terrorism in the world. Um, Ezekiel 38. So that's today's Saudi Arabia. There's also another Sheba in Scripture, I think at least one if not two, and that, that would be the descendant of Ham, Ethiopia, where we read about in uh, Solomon's day, the queen of Sheba came from Ethiopia. Well, Isaac is given all the inheritance. He and his descendants are the heirs of Abraham, the promises, the blessings, the seed, and the land. All of these others, it says, received gifts, but notice he sends them away from the land that is promised to Isaac's descendants. Isaac, his only son, and as far as God is concerned, he is his only son. So Abraham's careful to send all these other descendants away to the east, he says. And, um, but he gave all that he had, and he gave them gifts, but he gave all that he had to Isaac. He was the heir. Verses 12 through 18. Now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael was Nebajoth, then Kedar, then Ab- Adbeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hader, Tima, Jader, Nafish, and Kedemah. And you can pronounce them, mispronounce them much better than I'm, I can, I'm sure. So these were the sons of Ishmael. And if you notice, there were 12 of them. And uh, these were their names by their towns and their settlements, 12 princes according to their nations, as was prophesied to Hagar when, when uh, uh, Sarah chased her out into the desert. And uh, the Lord said, I'll make you of, your, of Ishmael many descendants. And, all. and this is uh, where they are. They dwelt or these were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137. 
years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. Now it says they dwelt from Havilah, and if you look through scriptures many times you talk about Havilah is where the gold is, the, and all as far as Shur, which is the east of Egypt, as you go toward Assyria, and he died in the presence of all his brethren. If you wanted to, um, Ishmael's descendants, when you look these princes up, they also are the fathers of the Arabic countries around the Middle East. If you want to look up Genesis 16, verse 12, 12, Keturah's side of things, um, in the first few verses, was, uh, you know, Abraham took gifts, and they went out and they settled. But it says of Ishmael, it says he settles in defiance of his relatives. Um, the word there, he died in the presence of all his brethren. You may have the, the King James or the New American Standard. What it says there is it's in the face of, as in I'm in your face. That's what he's saying there in, in verse 18. And so if you look at 16, verse 12, um, this is what's said of Ishmael. It says, he shall be a wild man, his hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of, his bro- of all his brethren. Again, in, the f- in defiance of all his relatives. Now you mix that with a religion uh, that demands murder and, and hegemony. hegemony. And anyways, you know, when the, what that is is to replace to go out, you have to replace and take everything else that, that's out there in the world. Hegemony. I get the M and the N backwards. I shouldn't use big words that I can't say, should I? <laughs> but it's the only one that fits. This religion demands murder and just taking over the world. You get the most violent, bloodthirsty people doing most unspeakable things in the name of their God. And this is the world that we're looking at on our television set. You know, they take it down so that you seem to think that there's... And it's what's interesting is in the last few, three years, you don't hear a whole lot about Islam and what's going on and the threat that was there. Um, you know, since we got us a new boss in the White House, things are totally quiet on that front. Nobody says anything about it. Does that mean they've stopped? You know, no way. And so um, you take a religion that says there will only be peace... And the only time peace shows up in the Quran is like this. It says, when all our enemies are dead, we'll have peace. That's their peace. You know, it's not peace with each other. It's peace because you're gone. Some consider Ishmael's son, Kader, that we read, to be the father of Islam. Islam. So verses 19, back in Genesis 25, verses 19 down through 34, Well, this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian, notice. Uh, Remember, they went all the way up back up to Haran, um, to Haran, where uh, uh, Bethuel was, and Laban we read about last week. Well, that's that northern area of Syria. Um, Of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syria. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, 
If all is well, why am I like this? And so she went in to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the other shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, and he was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau, which means hairy. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, heel holder, or heel grabber, or, you know. Um, and Isaac was, or I'm sorry, and uh, where'd I go? I backed up. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, they, so they named him Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when he was born, when, when she bore them. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And now Jacob cooked a stew. Esau came and in from the field, and he was weary. Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name is called Edom. And that means red. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? And then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. And he ate and drank, arose and went his way. And thus Esau despised his birthright. Well, first off, a little bit about prayer, because this is actually the second time prayer is mentioned in the Bible. The first time is back in uh, Genesis 20. Um, Abraham, uh, the Lord said to Abimelech, you know, I'll have Abraham pray for you and so that you won't uh, be cursed. And that was because he had taken Sarah into his house. Um, and so that was the first time that prayer is ever mentioned, where God says, Abraham will pray for you. And indeed, Abraham did pray for him. The second time is right here in verse 21, where it says, Isaac pleaded with the Lord. And I think New American Standard just says, Isaac prayed unto the Lord. Isaac was certainly told the story of his birth um, and the patience, the miracle, Sarah being childless for 90 years. In the last chapter, we read it wasn't even until Rebekah that Isaac was comforted at the loss of his mother. And with all the prayers, with all that, he prays for Rebecca. Um, you know, God answers Rebecca's, and, and Rebecca conceived. But Rebecca's pregnancy is not going well, and to the point where she went out and inquires of the Lord, God answers with the reason and a prophecy regarding her babies. And I say babies because these were not, you know, fetal blobs of tissue. And the Lord clearly says these are two nations. These are human beings with specific identities, and he names it and gives it to her what these identities and these lives that are known to God and he made known to her. And it's just another testimony that is very much a life. Um, God tells Rebecca the future of these two. So she already knows that the older one is going to serve the younger, it's a prophecy that's given to Rebecca, 
And he, she knows the one people will be stronger than the other. And we'll see how that plays out. But she is a believer. She goes and she inquires of the Lord, um, knowing her sons. And it says now, after hearing from the Lord, now she loves Jacob, knowing that uh, the younger would serve the older, or the older would serve the younger. Now Isaac, on the other hand, like any man, loves good barbecue, loves Esau for the game that he catches and brings back. It's uh, venison, or um, actually says victuals. Um, the game that he would catch and he would cook for Isaac and all. But Rebecca's prayer was answered. Sometimes, you know, God gives you answers that, and insights that comfort you when things are troubling, when things are struggling, even though the struggle continued on until she delivered these babies. You know, he gave her comfort. He gave her an answer. First of all, this is what's going on. And, and secondly, you know, this is what they're going to be. These are who the, these kids are going to be. And so what's going on is something that's going to be going on uh, through history even. And so, um, you know, I would never say how somebody ought to pray, how, how to talk to their Savior. Um, but prayer is intimate. It's honest. He sees everything. He knows everything about us. Um, he knows what's in our hearts before. We, he knows what's on our lips before we're even saying it. He knows all these things. But it often takes trouble and sorrow, something difficult for us to go through before we start to lift it up like she did. Um, but, you know, we only know him by his word, right? Because our experiences can be truly from him, but they're our own. But if, and if it doesn't line up with the word, you have to check those against the word as well. But the... Uh, the fact that we know him is because we know his word. And it's oftentimes that he'll answer by his word and comfort us through his word, giving us uh, answers, doing things that only he can do and only he has an answer for, those things that we're praying for. Many of the Psalms are prayers. David and others that called upon the Lord, called upon God, seeking and inquiring of the Lord. Many for serious life and death circumstances, some personal, some intimate issues that only God can answer, some, and God can see and do anything about. Sometimes it's threats from enemies, sometimes it's betrayal from friends, and sometimes it's thanksgiving for God's provision and deliverance, and intimate prayers of repentance for forgiveness, for mercy, for restoration. One such psalm I think would be true for all of us is Psalm 32, if you want to turn there. Because really we're talking about prayer when, when Rebecca, she, she gets out of what's going on around the house. She goes out, it says, and calls on the Lord, seeks the Lord, inquires of the Lord. Got away from everything, got to where she was alone with the Lord. Psalm 32, Psalm of David, says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Well, that... Right there means this is for all of us. Whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. Though my groaning all the day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality was turned into the drought of summer, Selah. And I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. 
And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. It was after his vitality had turned to nothing, nothing left. Then he acknowledges his sin. Then he turns to the Lord and confesses his sin. And says, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And Selah, for this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you. In a time you may be found, surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You are my, uh, you shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. This is personal. This is intimate stuff. And, you know, you don't always want to think about, you know, those types of things. But the truth of it is, that's where the rubber meets the road for a believer. When they are able to be completely honest. The Lord knows you're being honest with yourself more than anything. And laying it out before the Lord. And the Lord responds with a couple of verses and says, I will instruct you and I will teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding and have to be harnessed with a bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. And then he says, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Jesus would often go up to the mountains. If you want to turn to Matthew 6, um, he would get away too. He'd go up to the mountains to pray. He'd go to Gethsemane, go off someplace by himself or maybe with just a few of his disciples away from the crowd to pray. Just like we saw Rebecca who went out, got away on her own with the Lord to find out what's going on. Jesus does have a few things to say about how we would pray. In verses 5 through 8, When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. That's so wise. You know, to, to know the Lord is, is um, right there with us, always, anywhere we are. Um, a lot of times for me, it's growing down the highway because I spend a lot of time on the highway don't have to listen to music or don't have to listen even to Bible teaching for a spell. Give that a rest. Give my mind a rest and just draw close to the Lord. And um, Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, says also, and even the first part of this chapter, a parable of the persistent widow, how to stay persistent and, you know, uh, relentless, to be honest, when you're seeking the Lord. But in verse 9, he spoke this parable, his, this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. It says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners and unjust and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You know, tax collectors were despised just like they are today. Only back then they lived in your same neighborhood 
and uh, you got to walk past their house, and they had a couple of Roman soldiers there, so you couldn't mess with them. And uh, they would even maybe do a little bit of taking more than they had coming in order for, to get them to leave you alone. And he's, so these, these Pharisees just despised, as did most of them, despised these tax collectors. And they were some kind of sinners. Everybody knew it. But he says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off, he would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exhausted, exalted. Even a tax collector, even today, is that who you want to compare something to? Whatever your example would be, the ones that you think are just the worst kind of human beings, you know, there's a time when they may come to the Lord and they're going to sit there and they're going to pound their breast and they're going to just be so full of sorrow for their sins. What did the Lord say about the, the woman who was uh, a prostitute? You know, who came to him. He says, those who are forgiven much, love much. Those who are forgiven little, love little. And um, he shows how God desires that we're honest about our depravity, just like we read in Psalm 32. And um, Romans eight twenty-two through 30. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits, we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what does one still hope for when he sees it or has it? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait and we wait with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And now he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, what the mind of the Spirit is, and because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God, And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, and for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And moreover, uh, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he are, uh, has glorified, also glorified. Even our hearts, we don't know our hearts. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all things. But he knows our hearts. And sometimes maybe we don't know how to pray. Maybe we don't know what's causing the trouble. And maybe we don't know whether we're going to get out of the situation or not. And, and what the Lord's will is in the situation. But his spirit knows. And he says his spirit gives us and helps us in our weakness. Isaac prays for Rebekah. Rebekah inquires of the Lord. And we have these two sons now who are going to become two nations, and they're struggling and they're fighting in Rebekah's womb. Well, we were going to 
learn a little bit about these guys. Um, what does it say back in Genesis 25 about Jacob? Well, the first thing is they named him Jacob, which means heel catcher, but it really means surplanter, supplanter. And what that means is somebody that takes the place of another by force or by scheming or by strategy. But it also says Jacob is a peaceful guy. He lives in the tents. He's loved by his mom, Rebecca. And it says he deals for the birthright. We saw that. He lays down the deal when he has the opportunity. So, But he's the surplanter. He does it in the same way he talks about it, the same way he was named for, um, by, by scheming, by a strategy. And we'll see that in a few chapters as well when it comes down to Isaac actually blessing him and him getting the birthright. Esau, what's it say about Esau? He's hairy, he's red. Edom means red. Also, he's named, it's funny, they named him Red after the soup that he traded away his birthright for. In other words, thanks, Grandpa. You know, I hope the soup was good. We'll call you Red now because you just had to have some of that red soup. And here we are now with nothing. Well, he was a hunter, it says. He lived in the fields. A little contrast. Jacob lived in tents. Um, and he was loved of Isaac. But it says right there at the end of chapter uh, 25 in Genesis that it says he despises his birthright. Now, the birthright, first of all, who does it belong to? Well, it belongs to the firstborn. It belongs to Esau. Jacob bargains for it. Jacob values it. Jacob sees what's there. Esau says he's too hungry to even care. But Jacob is serious about it. And to the point where he makes Esau swear and uh, to give it to him. Now, if it ever did come down to having to be uh, you know, brought before Isaac for a judgment, well, there's no witnesses. Just you know, Jacob and Esau. But he makes him swear. And Esau would have to lie outright if it ever came down to it uh, because he swore. So Esau swears it. He sells it. He despises it. And uh, he didn't care anyways. He had already despised it, as we'll see. But the word despised, um, Hebrew Concordance 959, it means to hold in contempt or disdain. Uh, It means to regard something with complete contempt as despicable, vile, and worthless. He's talking about his birthright. That's what the Bible says Esau thought about his birthright. Because he was hungry. You know, he's used to getting game. Who knows, maybe that day he didn't do so well. And he came back in, he was hungry, and he had to get something, you know, something to eat. And he saw it, and saw it was red. You know, maybe in his barbecue he didn't use tomato sauce, and, and Jacob did. Who knows? But whatever it was, it was something that he had to have. And he says, I'm going to die if I don't get anything to eat. And so he gives away his, his birthright. Well, what's the Lord think about that? Let's go to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, just as verses 14 through 16. He says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, uh, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, causing trouble. And by this many become defiled. Notice the context here. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person, Profane person like Esau, who 
who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Esau, as far as the Lord was concerned, was profane for despising that birthright. You know, what, what, is, what is this birthright? What is the significance? Um, what did Jacob see in it? Well, this is going to be his descendants. Jacob was around. He knows uh, the story from Isaac. He knows, uh, you know, what Isaac saw in the birthright, what God told Abraham, what God promised through Isaac. And here's Isaac's firstborn despising that birthright. Um, it's his descendants. It's the promise and the land and the seed, the promised seed. Uh, that would be the Messiah. How does God consider a birthright? Well, I'm just going to read a few of these or, or comment on a few. Just First Chronicles 5 refers back to Genesis 49, and which actually refers also back to Genesis 35, the story about Reuben. Reuben was Israel's, or Jacob, Jacob's firstborn. But he defiled Jacob by taking his concubine, and uh, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph. Well, yet it says later that Judah actually prevailed over his brothers, and the ruler, the birthright, the inheritance, the, came through Judah, and we see that it was Judah down through the kings and all. Exodus 13 says that, uh, and also Psalm 78 uh, accounts the same story, Israel's firstborn were consecrated to God because God, when he took them out of Egypt, he took Pharaoh's firstborn. And uh, he, before Pharaoh finally would let him go, he actually killed the firstborn in Egypt, including Pharaoh's kid. And... Um, you know, what's God's definition? Let's look at that. Deuteronomy 21. What is the definition of a birthright? Deuteronomy 21, and that is verses 15 through 17. And he's going through the, the, the law, you know, and the various things, um, circumstances and situations that would come up. And he He's talking about, let's just say there's a situation where this guy has two wives and they have to sort out when he dies who gets the goods. So he says in 15, if a man has two wives and, and loved, one loved and the other unloved, and they have borne him children, both the loved and the unloved, if, and if the firstborn son is of her who is unloved, then it shall be on the day he bequeaths his possessions to his sons that he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved wife in preference to the son of the unloved the true firstborn but he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion and all that he has for here's the definition for he is the beginning of his strength the right of the firstborn is his the birth right double portion the word beginning means the first, the best, the chief, the choicest. And of strength means vigor, generative power, and wealth. It's simply a birthright that God has established. A birthright because he was born first. The Bible talks about that which opens the womb, the firstborn being uh, the one that has the birthright. Not only for passing down these possessions, as far as the Lord is concerned, and who gets what. But it's the bloodline. It's the line of the descendants through Israel's history to fulfill all prophecy 
concerning his son, the Messiah. It's important who is the firstborn and who the birthright comes through. Now, even all the change-ups, like we see in our story tonight with Esau being supplanted by Jacob, that's a change-up. Uh, also, we saw with Terah and uh, um, Reuben. Uh, but the bloodline and the descendants through Israel's history, they fulfill the prophecy concerning the Messiah. And, um, you know, even down to, to Mary, you know, who's... Father was the Holy Spirit before jo- Joseph even took her to be his wife. You know, her bloodline goes back to David, just like her genealogies go back to David, just like Joseph's did. If you want to turn to Hebrews 1, you know, God even established that aspect of, of Mary by prophesying that he would be born of a virgin. Impossible. And yet, he established that before, hundreds of years before it took place, as a witness to identify who the Messiah was, who the true Messiah of Israel is. Hebrews 1, verses 5 through 8, says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now, you know, the angels would tell you, don't worship them. If you're going to worship, it's going to be God, not any angel. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And you have loved righteousness and hated evil. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. But Jesus is God's firstborn, sent into the world, not a part of creation with the world, but as firstborn in preeminence, not as created as some say, that he's not God and he's not equal to God. He's not one with God from all eternity. But, you know, like, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, they cannot handle the fact that Jesus is God and all. And so they make up stories. You know, he's either Lucifer's brother. Well, that means he's created. And he's, he's not the son of God. He was created with everything else just way before the rest of creation. Well, then he's not God. But he is firstborn in preeminence. And the throne is forever, it says. He's worshipped with God the Father, it says here. And his rule and his scepter, his scepter being the royalty, the inheritance, his eternal kingdom, the kingdom of his father given to him. Father says he gives all things to the son. So he's worshipped with God. Colossians 1. Um, yep, the firstborn has all the preeminence. Colossians 1, 15 through 18. And really going back to 9. But in 15 it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, not a part of all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist, and he is the head of the body. The church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. 
Not that he was born and created, but that he has preeminence and that he is firstborn now among the dead and then we follow. Praise the Lord. We have that hope knowing that it's been done. He did it. We, and there's testimony, there's witnesses, the Gospels, and hundreds of disciples who saw him after he had raised from the dead after three days. But it says he's firstborn before all of us. And the expressed image or the image of the Father. And we are being conformed into his image. And back in Romans 8, we read you know, earlier that uh, 29, that we're being conformed into his image. Well, the summary of all this is the firstborn is that which opens the womb, but it's important to God for his descendants that follow the inheritance that is passed on, which includes the promises he made to those he's chosen. Again, God chose Israel out of all the population of the world that he would show himself to the world through them and through the Messiah. The birthright goes to the first, the strength, the heir of the father's wealth, the kingdom, and strength. Esau was the firstborn, and the birthright was his to throw away, and he did. Well, how did God consider that? In our, one of our last verses here, Romans 9, Romans 9, 1 through 16. This section, uh, Romans 9, 10, 11, begins the section in Romans where Paul talks about Israel by the flesh and the church, or Israel by faith. That's you and me. That's our uh, inheritance through Abraham, our descendants from Abraham, because we're, we believe, like Abraham believed. Um, but in verse 1, I tell the truth in Christ. Paul's just full of sorrow here. I, I am not lying. My conscience also bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and a continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ. Are you kidding me? No matter what happens on this earth, that he's talking about is eternity, that he could be, he would even be cursed from Christ. He's talking about his eternity for the sake of his brethren, his heart and his sorrow so great for them. I wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, notice, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and of whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is, over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. But this is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But it says in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah, also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac. For the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. And uh, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved. And notice this, Esau I hated, God said. We shall, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Well, certainly not. For he 
says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And so then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. You know, this is where you start making that list, and you can see the list come together, the things that are said about Israel and the flesh, and Israel who is descended by, from uh, Abraham in the flesh, and that same Israel that's on that eastern shore of the Mediterranean, um, as we speak today, you know, they are descendants of Abraham. You know, some may, may uh, dispute that, but if it wasn't for Ezekiel 36 that we talked about earlier, they might have an argument. But God said he would gather them from all the nations and bring them back to that place. But that's Israel of the flesh. Now, you make that list, and I think last week I said it was two lines and three columns. It's just one line down the middle of your paper and a column. At the top you put Israel according to the flesh, and the other you put Israel according to faith, descendants of Abraham by faith, the church, us, whatever you want to put there. And if you read through Romans 9, 10, and 11, you'll have to think about it because as you're reading through, well, is he talking about the church or is he talking about Israel? But if you look at the context only and you just use what it says, you'll get to a verse because the first, first part of this, he's literally saying that Israel has rejected God and they're not even Israel anymore. Those that maybe are sitting over on the other side of the Mediterranean, they're still trusting in their works. They rejected the Messiah. But uh, they're still Israel through Abraham, but they're not Israel by faith like we are, like the church is. Um, but that's not the end of the story. If you go through 9, 10, and 11, you'll say, in 10, he talks about them needing the gospel. They rejected the gospel. And we talked about last week how... how uh, Beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring tidings of glad uh, things or good things, and yet they have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, who's believed our report? And so he talks about faith coming by hearing. But in chapter 11, he begins to go through, and I'm kind of laying this out for your sake if you wanted to do that list, and I know I gave you a little misleading thing last week, but you just put those two things, Abraham by flesh, and Abraham's descendants by, by faith. And you'll get down to Romans 11, verse 11. And it'll, it changes gears because up until that point, it talks about how it's prophesied that Israel has in fact been stumbled. They've been blinded. And to this day, many are. But it also talks about those that he saved out, those that were a remnant when Jezebel was chasing the prophets, and Elijah's up in the mountains. And Elijah says, Lord, I'm the only one that's left. He says, no, I've reserved for myself, was it 7,000? And um, who have not bowed the knee, knee, to, knee to Baal, that's up in verse 4. But down in verse 11 it says, I say then, have they stumbled? And that they there can't be the church, because the whole context of this is Israel. So you have to make that list, that they is Abraham according Abraham's descendants according to the flesh. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, what was the reason for all of it? To provoke them to jealousy because salvation came to the rest of us, to the Gentiles. And so now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness, those descendants of Abraham in the flesh. 
For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I'll magnify my ministry. And he goes on down to say, um, until the fullness of the Gentiles, what verse is that, um, comes in. And so there will come a time. And when the Lord takes us out, when the rapture of the church, God once again starts the time peace with Israel, seven years, and you're sitting in a church that has been preaching this for 40 years, as far as I've been here, 42 years. So you know it well. But the, the rest of the vast majority of quote-unquote Christendom, and certainly the rest of the world these days, with the BDS movements and the anti-Semitism that's out there, and, and the deals that our, our current occupant at a White House is dealing up with Iran right now, that's literally setting the face of every nation against Israel. And that's what God said would have to happen. It's sad and it's hard because we know that those who bless Abraham will be blessed. And that includes his descendants. And we bless Israel. We know that God will once again deal with them. But here we are, and we're in a country now that in order to fulfill prophecy, we're getting to the point where now there is... uh, our country is turning its back on them. But we can rest in the fact we know that it was prophesied. It has to happen. And we will become few. And those that despise Israel will become more. So that this can take place like the Lord said it would. So you can make a list of everything said. And it's very revealing because I have family that is, holds the line that Israel is completely replaced by the church and all the promises and all the covenants and everything with Israel have now been taken on by the church. And, you know, Israel's over there is just a bunch of terrorists. They don't, they're nothing. And they got nothing to do with scripture anymore. They allegorize. And we talked about that a couple of weeks. The word for, or the allegory is only used once in the Bible. It's got nothing to do with Israel and the land. And um, has to do with faith and, and uh, Sarah and Rahab. Well, you can make that list and you'll find that, uh, in fact, God will once again deal with his people Israel. But Paul uses the account of Isaac to show that God is not unjust. God is not unrighteous. It says, but he's merciful. Back in chapter 9, it says, um, you know, I'll have compassion, mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have have, uh, compassion. And it's not the will of him who wills to make it work. Uh, Just like Isaac, you know, he couldn't, um, you know, we'll read in a couple of chapters in Genesis where Isaac uh, pursues Esau to be the firstborn, to bless him. But instead, it was God's will, long before Isaac even realized it, that Jacob had uh, purchased the birthright from Isaac for a bowl of soup, a morsel of bread, of food, and he knows the beginning from the end. He knows Esau would despise his birthright, the fact that God hated, the fact that he was profane, the fact that he despised that which God had decided was to be the the descendants of Isaac and Abraham. They named Jacob supplanter. He wouldn't, you know, he would, before he would ever take Esau's uh, birthright and replace him, supplant him as the firstborn and the heir of all God had promised to Isaac and Abraham. And then here we are, you know, being conformed into the image of 
Christ Jesus, the firstborn, the heir of all things. And if you want to go back a page to Romans 8, you know, he's the heir of all things and for all eternity. And here we are, descendants by faith, righteous by faith in Abraham, or in, uh, the faith of Abraham in God. But in Romans eight twelve through 17, it says, Therefore, my brethren, we're debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We're going to heaven. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Um, Thank you for your word for us. I pray you would just take the things tonight, take the doctrine from your word, and put it in our hearts, make it uh, uh, useful for a testimony to the world. And Lord, to those that may be willing to understand that you will once again deal with your people Israel. One of the greatest signs that uh, your word is true is that that country exists over there today. We thank you for that. I just pray you'd go with us all and that you would be working in our hearts and lives. pray you'd continue to build up the love among the brethren, build up the the like-mindedness and the willingness, Lord, to just uh, surrender ourselves to you and to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.